We are going to start a new uh, study this evening, as I said, and uh, I want you to go to the book of Second Peter. The last couple of weeks, I've had to travel for various reasons, um, but now we're here, and for the next four weeks, unless something happens, I'll be in this book studying with you all and uh, getting going. And so our approach is going to be a little bit different this time around, but I'll explain that in a little bit. In the ancient city of Rome, there weren't that many prisons. In fact, there's only a couple that historians are aware of. Prisons in that era were reserved for the most dangerous, uh, the most uh, evil individuals, the most violent, those who were condemned to death. In the heart of Rome was the area called the Roman Forum. If you study Roman history, you know exactly what that is. It was the center of political and religious life in the entire Roman Empire, which if you're looking around the first century, you're looking at about a 60 million person empire. Right in the center of Rome, right next to Palatine Hill on a hill called the Capitoline Hill, they were adjacent, stood this ancient prison. To this day, it is one of the world's oldest, and from historical accounts, was one of the most dangerous prisons and the most terrifying prisons in Roman history. It was built by the fourth king of Rome back in the 7th century BC, and his name was Ancus Marcius. It was originally named Cacer Tulanum because at the bottom of this prison area was a cistern. A little spring. Now, in the medieval times, it was renamed the Mamertine Prison because there was a temple devoted to the god Mars close by, and so the name stuck. And to this day, if you were to Google it, it would come up as the Mamertine Prison. You can visit it if you're interested and to see a prison that dates to 7th century BC that operated in the Roman Empire consistently for a thousand years. This prison was uh, developed on two levels. The first level was kind of like a holding area for a prisoner who would be escorted and ultimately executed. So within a couple days of his um, freedom, or freedom rather, release from this prison, he would be taken away to execution. But then there would be a bottom level, and you see some pictures of that. This is the outside of the prison. This is the bottom level of the prison. And you can kind of see that little hole that would be where the cistern was. To this day, there's water there. I've been there a few times. And you can see the hole in the ceiling. You see that hole? So that was the only connection between the top level and the bottom level. So when a prisoner was assigned to this prison, he would be dropped through that hole. And he could remain at the bottom level for years. It was a dark, dangerous, damp, claustrophobic unhealthy environment because of the little spring it was always wet there was always water there you can imagine living in that environment for years and years and years archaeologists recently have found bones as they were excavating that area which indicates that there were sacrifices made because this place was understood by the ancient romans to be the conduit from this world to the next it was really the chamber to hell and that's intentionally was kept dark. So the prisoners who were assigned to this location were understood to be not worthy to live in Rome. They were dangerous to the survival of Rome. They had no rights to be part of the Roman society. And so symbolically, they were removed from the world of light, dropped into this hole as a way to enter the underworld. Many of the prisoners in this area were traitors. They were of high-value captives. They might have led a war against the Roman Empire. They would have been captured, arrested, sent to this prison, awaiting their execution, which would have been uh, preceded by a parade down the Via Sacra, which is the sacred way of Rome, the most holy city, uh, street in Rome, leading you from the Colosseum to the Roman Forum. And then they would be executed. Some of them would have been executed as a sacrifice to Jupiter, who was the main god of the ancient Roman Empire. Others would be starved to death. Others would be strangled or decapitated. The point of sending somebody to this prison 
was to dehumanize this individual, to humiliate this individual, to strip him of all human dignity. And then the corpse would be left behind because in the ancient times, there was a little exit passage that basically symbolized somebody's death and transition from this world to the next, right into hell. One of Julius Caesar's enemies who organized the Gauls to fight Julius Caesar in the 50s BC was captured, spent six years in this prison before he was taken up and ultimately executed. In the year 31, just a couple years before Jesus' crucifixion, there was a name by the name, there was a man by the name of Sejanus. Sejanus rose up in the Roman military as a soldier, and then he became the head of the secret police called the Praetorian Guard. For 17 years he held that title until the year 31, when he was found to be a traitor. And he was arrested and executed. He was spent time in this prison and then he was executed. His entire family was executed. All of his friends were executed. And anybody who obtained any kind of position as a governor, as some influential individual in the entire Roman Empire would have been executed. That's how far the Romans went to eliminate any opposition and any sedition. Pilate, who would the one who would consign Jesus to crucifixion was put into his position over all of Judea because of his friendship with Sejanus. We don't know exactly from Roman historians why he survived this purge by the Roman emperor Tiberius, but he did survive only for a couple of years because a couple of years after Sejanus' execution, he was deposed and exiled. All to say, this was reserved for the worst of the worst. Just a few years, really 40 years, 30, 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the Jewish war started in the year 66 and ended in the year 71. And there was one of the rebels who started the war, one of the commanders of the Jewish legions, the Jewish military. His name was Simon Bargiora. He fought Rome for five years, captured, was captured, brought to this prison, spent some time in there. He was taken out, paraded through the city of Rome, all the way down the sacred way. And then it's unclear exactly how he died, but he he was either strangled or thrown down from a massive platform to his death. This happened just a few years after two other prisoners were held in this location. From 1 Peter, we learn that in the year 64, the emperor Nero decided to build a massive house for himself called the Golden House. In order to make room for it in the city of Rome, he had to burn some of the city. And so he had started a fire in July of AD 64, which burned 80% of the city. Of course, the people uh, panicked and were looking for the culprits, and Nero decided to blame the Christians for his decision to burn the city of Rome. The Christians began to be viciously persecuted from the year 64 on, during the reign of Nero, when he finally committed suicide in the year 68. But for those four years, 64 to 68, the persecution of Christians was vicious, such that many of them fled the city of Rome, and that's the context of the book of 1 Peter. The reason that it opens with to the exiles, to the strangers, to those who are traveling all over the Roman Empire, primarily towards this area of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor in the ancient times, he was writing to those individuals against the backdrop of persecution and hostility from the, from the emperor Nero. But as we get into the book of 2 Peter, we find ourselves in mid-60s, 65, 66 AD. I'll explain why that is, the appropriate date for this book. And in this time, Peter has been captured by Nero and Paul. Peter and Paul are now actual prisoners in this prison. And remember what I said, it was reserved for the most vicious, the most violent, the most dangerous prisoners in all of Rome. But because Nero designated the Christians as enemies of the people, as dangerous individuals who started the fire of Rome, he arrested two of their leaders in all of early church history. Peter is connected to Rome as one of its founding pastors, the church there. And of course, we know that Paul spent quite a bit of time in Rome as well. You can read the book of Romans. 
So now we find Peter and Paul as prisoners in this city, in this prison rather. It's this context that gives us an insight into exactly the condition and the location that Peter is in when he writes this book. Paul would have been taken out of this prison and taken about five miles away out of the city um, and then decapitated because he was a Roman citizen. Peter would have preceded him in his execution, his martyrdom, when he was crucified upside down. But before he was crucified upside down, as his wife was about to be killed, he spoke to her gently, his final words being, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And then he was executed, and so was his wife. When you open up Second Peter, five times, he says to the readers of this book, remember. The same words that he parted with his wife, he now parts with the Christians whom he loved and preached to and pastored for many years in the city of Rome, who are now fleeing the city of Rome to modern-day Turkey. He writes this final letter to them, and he says to them five times, remember. Remember the truth within you. Remember the words spoken by the prophets. Remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior. I'd like for us to understand as we study this book, and tonight I'm just going to introduce it for us. What is the main point of this book? How do we understand it as a, in an outline form as we move through it for the rest of the semester? But what is Paul, Peter rather trying to leave with us as he tells us to remember? Remember the Lord, remember the commandments, remember the words spoken by the prophets. Peter begins the second letter slightly different as he describes himself in the first letter, you should see on a screen the comparison of 1 Peter 1.1 and 2 Peter 1.1. In the first letter, which he wrote probably one to two years before the second letter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the second letter, he says, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He wasn't in prison when he wrote the first letter. So he introduces himself as an apostle, which is a word that was used to describe a cargo ship that would take cargo from port to port. And the importance of that delivery system was to deliver the cargo faithfully. It has to be protected. It has to be preserved fully intact in its original packaging. Thereby, it would be faithful from the source which, where, where the ship left to the destination. That's the meaning of the word apostle, one who is sent to deliver a message, an envoy for another individual or one who delivers a package. But as Paul, St. Paul, apologize, as Peter writes the second letter, he's no longer free. He's in prison. And he's in prison because he is a slave for Jesus Christ, because he has been one who carried the gospel from city to city. And now he's been arrested and captured. And so now he is more like a slave in this condition. To be a slave in the Roman Empire was to be possessed by somebody else, to belong to somebody else. Your freedoms were taken away. And so it's to understand yourself from a human point of view, you're a tool to accomplish a purpose on behalf of another individual. That is what it meant to be a slave, to always obey and to always serve somebody else. In the context of our relationship with Jesus Christ, it means you are always serving Jesus Christ. It means you're possessed by Jesus Christ. It means that there are no vacation days. There is no holiday that you take from your relationship as a servant of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you are offering undistracted devotion to the Lord, which I've said this before. It's a term for personal assistant. You're available, you're on call 24 hours a day to the Lord like a personal assistant would be to an executive. One commentator describes it this way. The Christian cannot either deliberately or unconsciously compartmentalize life into time and activities which belong to God and the time and activities which do not belong to God. The Christian is necessarily the man or woman every moment of whose time is spent in the service of God. That's what you have to understand about yourself as a Christian if you understand it in reference to being a servant, a bond servant, a slave 
of the Lord. You are always committed to the Lord. Every single moment. I am his agent. I am his emissary for the entirety of my life. And so Peter says, a slave, an apostle. But before that, he says, Simon or Simeon, Peter. The only other time in the Bible where that appears, Simeon Peter, is in Acts 15. In Acts 15, we have a secret meeting by the early church leaders, the apostles, the pastors. They gather together and they're trying to figure out how do we integrate the Gentiles into the church? Because the first Christians were Jewish people. And now all of a sudden, Gentiles are getting saved. You see that happening in Acts 2, and Acts 3, and Acts 8, and Acts 10. And they're struggling to figure out, okay, we are the chosen people. The Messiah is Jewish. All the scriptures, everything is devoted to the Jews. Read Romans 9 if you need to see some New Testament evidence for that. What do we do with these Gentiles who are dogs, who are hated by us Jews? How do we integrate them? So Acts 15 is the, is the Jerusalem meeting, Jerusalem council, where they are figuring out what to do with the Gentiles who are becoming Christ followers. And in that chapter, James calls Peter, Simeon, Peter. Because back in Acts 10, Peter had a vision that had to help him to understand that God is now going to bring the Jewish, uh, rather the Gentile people into a community with the Jews. Jesus calls Peter once in a while Simon. Remember that? <laughs> Not often, but a few times he calls him Simon or Simon Peter. But the way this is actually written, Simeon Peter, is only in Acts 15. But it also proves, because this was a Greek variation of the Hebrew name, that Peter was bilingual. He spoke Greek. And he spoke Hebrew, and so once in a while he would be called by the Greek name, once in a while he would be called by the Hebrew name. By the way, this was the most popular name for a man, a male individual, in that period. So he has a pretty popular name. But as he introduces himself, he then says in verse 1, to those who have received of the same kind of faith as ours. The same kind of faith as ours. In other words, there's a difference between the people that are reading this book versus Peter. He's Jewish, but it's individuals who receive the same kind of faith. So he's distinguishing himself from the audience. That is, the primary audience of this book is Gentile believers. And we know that it's the same people who received the first letter because in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So again, the primary direction where this letter was sent is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to the people who were persecuted just a couple years ago. They've settled in that region, and after reading the first letter, they received the second letter as Peter's parting words to his fellow Christians. And he says, you have received a faith that is similar to ours. It's interesting that he uses terminology that is very unique, in fact, only appears here in the New Testament. To receive something, it actually means to be cast, to cast a lot, and then essentially be fortunate to win. That's the word that's used here. In the New Testament, the other few times that this word appears, in the book of Acts specifically, and Luke, it means to cast lots and then be victorious. So it's as if he's saying, you have been fortunate to receive faith. Now, it makes sense against the backdrop of the Old Testament. If Jewish people are the chosen people by God, they're the ones who are supposed to receive the benefits of the Messiah and salvation. Anybody outside of that circle would be fortunate to be integrated into this community. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Specifically, the connection, the relationship, the integration between the Jew and the Gentile in the church. So that's what Peter means when he says, you have received, you have been fortunate to receive a faith that is similar to ours. But what this also means is that there is no such thing as a solitary believer. He's talking to a group of Christians. You all have received a faith. In the entirety of the New Testament, there's no such thing as a Christian who walks the Christian journey alone. In this country... We are very individualistic, unlike many other countries in the world. We have prioritized and prefer the individual. You can do things your way, right? Frank Sinatra made sure we knew that and understood it. 
I did it my way. That's our mindset, generally speaking. In the Christian community, that is not how we think about ourselves. That is not how we think about each other. We don't do it on our own. And not even to say just me and Jesus. No, we do it together. There's a communal element to the Christian life. And so Peter puts that at the very beginning. You have received a faith that is like ours. Like the Jewish people. Then he says you received this faith. The end of verse 1. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek language... There's a way to communicate something that makes two persons equal as if we're talking about the same individual. Okay? On the screen, you should see that. So, 2 Peter 1.1 says, The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how we know in the Greek language that that is what's being implied. When there's only one article, the, covering God and, and Jesus and Savior. You see that? Now look at the second verse. There's two articles. Now this is a you know, literal translation from the Greek, so it's not what you see in your Bible. But you can see the God, the Lord. If there's one article, what that means in the Greek language is that God and Jesus is the same person. So for those of you who defend the Christian faith and you want to defend the deity of Jesus Christ, this is one of those few verses that allow us to do so from the grammar of the language. If you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, oftentimes they'll talk to you about this. That Jesus isn't God. But this, in, this, in this passage, what Peter is doing, he says, the righteousness that we have received, we have been justified by Jesus, who is Savior and God. That's one way to understand this. I want to show you both of those because in verse 2, the knowledge of the God, and then you can say the knowledge of Jesus. God and Jesus are not the same in the second verse. And that's hugely important because you remember Jesus in his final prayer, John 17, before he goes to the cross. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent. Knowledge or a relationship with Jesus Christ isn't just with Jesus. It's with Jesus and God the Father. So we have a dual relationship. So here he says the knowledge of the God and of Jesus. Peter is reaffirming what Jesus said back in John 17. Our knowledge isn't limited to just Jesus. It is with God the Father and Jesus the Son. So make sure you understand this. And I get that as we're going a little bit into the grammar. But I want to show you something that I think you can use in your apologetics as you defend the Christian faith. This is proving that Jesus is God. Titus 2.13 has a very exactly the same uh, phrase in that. Again, a single article de- placing, placed over Jesus and God as one individual. So now Peter is reminding his readers, the Gentiles primarily... That you have been saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is God and Savior. Well, then he says what he said in the first letter. Grace and peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Go back to 1 Peter 1.1 and see how similar that phrasing is at the very end of verse 2. The last phrase of verse 2 of 1 Peter 1 is, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. When we talked about 1 Peter, we talked about the fact that grace and peace was necessary. And it set the backdrop to persecution, hostility, and the volatility of their lives. That it was good to understand that you have peace even in the context of turmoil. You have God's grace sustaining you every single day. Not limited grace, multiplied grace. It never ends. It is lavished upon you. In fact, Cicero, one of the most famous orators of the first century BC, said grace is something that is fortunately given to you. It's a favor that's given to you. But in the Roman understanding, you would give more grace to people who are higher up in the social structure of the empire. So, A senator would receive more grace in a legal context. It's a legal term, actually. He would receive more grace because he was higher ranked than a pleb, a peasant. 
That's not how it is with God. Peter, Paul, everybody in the New Testament, as they use the word grace, they're not saying God gives a little bit of grace to those who are lower on the social uh, pole of society and then more grace to those who are more important. Rather, he says, to all of you who have received a a salvation or a faith that is like to ours, grace and peace will be multiplied to you. Because I hope you understand that and you love that and you embrace it. That God doesn't limit his grace ever. And if you were to do a study of the word grace in the New Testament, I encourage you to do that someday and just write out every single time grace appears. It's overwhelming that you can't do anything in the Christian life apart from grace. You're saved by it. You stand in it. You are empowered by it when you serve other people. And ultimately, he leads you into eternity by his grace. Peter starts there and Peter finishes there. Because if you just look probably to the left side of that in your Bible, you'll see that back at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, he will also say in verse 12, this is the true grace of God. And then in verse 14, peace be to you. So he starts with grace and peace in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter, and he ends with grace and peace in chapter 5. He starts with grace and peace in 2 Peter 1, and he ends with grace and peace At the end of chapter 3, verse 14, he'll say, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And then in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He understands that what accompanies you and me in our Christian lives is grace and peace. And we need that. And it's peace with God because our souls have been saved from hell, from sin, from judgment by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter is trying to communicate to these individuals. And he does so, as I said a minute ago, in the year 65. How do we know that? Well, Nero committed suicide in the year 68. And because all church tradition says that Nero was killed Peter and Paul, sometime between before 68... Peter was martyred. We also know from 1 Timothy 4.11 that that is Paul's final letter. And in verse 11, he says, I'm in prison, only Luke is with me. Now before that, Peter was with him. That is about the year 67 when Paul is martyred. So before 67, Peter was martyred and that left only Paul and then Luke came to visit him. So Peter was killed first, then Paul. So sometime between 64 when the persecution started, which is when 1 Peter was written, and then 65, 66 before Paul's execution, Peter writes this letter. So between 65 and 66, do you see the proximity between the two letters? You're talking about a 12-month gap, maybe 18 months between the first and second letter. In the first letter, he's free. He's trying to encourage the people that are not feeling free because they're lost everything, their church, their friends, their property, and they're left Rome. In the second letter, listen to how he talks about himself. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and you have been strengthened in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right As long I am in this earthly dwelling, as long as I'm alive, in other words, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. So he understands that he's about to be martyred. It could be that supernaturally, Jesus revealed that to him. We know that from John 21, when Jesus restores Peter after his betrayal, he asks him three times the same question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus tells him, fine, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And then in verse 19, follow me. And then he says, when you were younger, you used to put on your own clothes, put on your own belt, and went wherever you wanted to go. When you're older, somebody else will actually wrap you and take you to a place where you don't want to go. That's a prediction about his martyrdom. So whether it's John 21 as a prophecy or another supernatural vision, you could say, he knows that his laying aside of this earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me. So just want to make sure you understand, it's hard to know what the Lord indicated, whether it's John 21, because he did say that, or if it's another prophecy about his death. 
But until then, verse 15, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. So now you have to understand that Peter, he's definitely in his 60s, maybe older. He's now writing as a grandfather. In this grandfatherly tone, knowing that his death is imminent. He wants to encourage them one more time and to make sure they understand. Remember these things. As I said, five times he would say that. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, This is now, beloved, in the second letter that I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring you up in your sincere mind by way of reminder. He wants them to remember that they stand in grace, that they're saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that they have received this excessive favor that is indiscriminate in regards to wherever you are in your social standing. Grace and peace. Back in the, chapter, in the first book, it was all about you received salvation because of grace and peace. And if you remember, just a quick recap, if you were with us last year, this is what First Peter was all about. If you want to show the next slide, this is how we understood First Peter We talked about it as being able to enjoy the good life even in the middle of persecution. Remember that study? Those of you here with us? Okay, thank you. It's only been two months. I appreciate that. And we divided that book in three ways, right? The first one is your good life in Christ. Everything begins with your relationship in Christ and then it transitions into your relationship in the community with unbelievers. That's the middle of the book. And then the final section is your good life in the church. So he was focusing our attention on people who are persecuted and yet he said you can still enjoy the good life because it's associated with Christ through salvation It demands that you live a different life in the community that's watching you. And then your relationships in the church are characterized by love and a few other virtues. That's 1 Peter. But now, he will complement his study in 1 Peter with 2 Peter. And the focus is the godly life. That's the best way to understand 2 Peter. Is that he's now calling those same people who were promised to experience the good life in this world, even in the middle of turmoil. When they live this good life, they're supposed to live it as godly individuals. Every single chapter in Second Peter mentions godliness. And then chapter 2 gives us a portrait of ungodliness. He illustrates through multiple individuals the godless life, the ungodly life. And so you see in verses 2 and 3, and Second Peter, look at what he says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Godliness is introduced at the very beginning of of this letter. And if you go to the end of chapter 3, look at verse 18. Rather, look at verse 14. Let me back you up even more. Verse 11. Okay? 311. Since all these things ought to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So as he wraps it up, He focuses on godliness again, and as I said, it will appear multiple times in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then even in chapter 3. Godliness is the main focus of this book, not only because the word godliness or godly or ungodly appears multiple times, but I'd like for you to just look at the screen and see how many synonyms to godliness appear in this book, thereby forming the same point. Like this is what Peter is calling us to. Godliness in those passages, moral excellence, self-control, purification from former sins, holy commandments, holy prophets, holy conduct. Righteousness, as righteous men, Lot was, in his righteous soul, were to go in the way of righteousness. Righteousness dwells in the new heaven and the new earth. Lot was a preacher of righteousness. We're to be spotless and we're to be blameless. All these are really synonyms to the same idea that Peter is calling Christians to live the godly life. And then look at the antonyms to godliness. 
Ungodly appears in those few passages, but then look at the list. Corruption, lusts, sensuality, greed, false words, angels who sinned, lawless deeds, unrighteous individuals kept for the day of judgment, those who go after the flesh, those who are self-willed, those who blaspheme, those who never stumble, those who are headed for destruction. Those who receive wages for their unrighteousness. Those who pursue pleasure. Those who are stains because of their unrighteous ways. Those who are blemishes. Those who revel in their deceptions. Those whose eyes are full of adultery and unceasing sin. Those who entice other unstable souls towards sin. Those whose heart is trained in greed. Those who are accursed children. Those who forsake the right way and they have gone astray. They receive the wages of unrighteousness once again. Their lawlessness is, characterizes them. They are arrogant in their words of vanity. They entice people with sensual lusts of the flesh. They conduct themselves in error. They are slaves of corruption. They are pursuing the defilements of the world. They are untaught and unstable. They are unprincipled men. They live in error. In three short chapters, about 400 words, how many different ways is he going to tell us the same thing? Pursue godliness, moral excellence, purity, holiness, righteousness, and avoid a list that long. I hope you understand what this book is about. It's a call for every single Christian, no matter where you are in life. They're still in Asia Minor, exiled, <coughs> still suffering. You, we never have an excuse. To not live godly. No matter how difficult life gets. So as you think about First and Second Peter. My encouragement is that you think about these two primary themes. The good life enjoyed in Christ. And then the godly life. That we are to display in this world. But he gave us a preview of this call. Back in chapter 2 of First Peter. The way he introduced the good life in the community. Is by saying, beloved, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. By keeping your conduct excellence among the Gentiles. So he's already previewed godliness and now he'll mention it elsewhere in 1 Peter. And he'll end that middle section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, by focusing on godliness again and sinlessness when he says in verse 2 don't live like you used to live pursuing the flesh pursuing your lusts the time has passed verse 3 that you used to fulfill the desires of the gentiles pursuing a course of sensuality lust drunkenness carousing drinking parties abominable idolatries that used to be your way of life it's all over now but now he'll focus the entire book on calling people to live in a way that is distinct a way that's different, that we are now radiating godliness everywhere we go. To be godly was understood to be devout, to be pious. It meant that you have a right relationship with your man around you, with the man around you, and with God, with deity. So in other words, it's holistic. It's not simply being Nice, kind, proper with people around you. But inside in your heart, you are devious and you're hateful. No, it's a holistic understanding that you are godly. Simply put, Thomas Schreiner says it this way, a, a very famous Christian writer. You live life that is like God. That's it. You're godlike. In everything that you do, in everything that you say, in everything that you think, you are godlike. And in those times when it's really difficult to be godlike, and those times are often, aren't they? Daily. Let's be honest. They're daily. Peter says at the very beginning, back to verse 3 of chapter 1, His divine power has granted to us everything Pertaining to life and godliness. That's the promise. In other words, you can do it. Because everything that you need to live like God, you have. We're not missing anything at all in this life. So it's not about having more power or having some kind of secret self-control 
No, you've, given, you've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. And the means to that is what? Through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So now he tells us this is how we pursue godliness. This is where we get access to the divine power that calls us and then gives us the ability to live godly lives. The knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's why when he closes this book in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the beginning to the end, he says, knowledge is the way we pursue godliness and the way we activate and ultimately implement and demonstrate or radiate godliness. It's through the right understanding of Jesus Christ and of God our Father. Now, it doesn't mean that as long as you read the Bible enough or if you memorize it or if you meditate on it, that's all it takes. Look at verses 5 through 8 in chapter 1. So he made this promise, you've got everything you need to be godly. But then verse 5 comes in. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. So now he's going to expect us to work a little bit. Applying all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge appears multiple times. So he says, this is what it's going to take for us as believers to live the godly life. It is going to require self-control and perseverance and discipline. And something that is continually increasing. In making us more and more fruitful rather than useless in verse 8. That is what it will take for us to continue to pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ and thereby have godly lives. And we're supposed to abound, overflow in the qualities that are associated with godliness like excellence and morality and perseverance, and brotherly love. Ultimately, the call from this book is for us to stop making excuses on why we're not as godly as we need to be. It's to never say that I don't have enough, I don't know my Bible enough, I don't do this, I don't do that. No, you have everything you need for life and godliness. It's going to be a pretty sobering study. I've been convicted just trying to get to through the first couple of verses and understand this book. And I really hope that you'll also be convicted. Not to just feel sorry for yourself and where you are and how sad it is that you're not where you want to be. I think we'll feel that way until we see Jesus face to face because that's when we'll be like him, First John 2 says. But to remember, the promise is given to us from the very beginning of this book. You have all you need to live a life that is God-like. But it comes through knowledge. Knowledge, which is why we spend so much time studying the Bible. Which takes us to the next kind of section of understanding this book, and that is doctrine. You see, this book is filled with doctrine. And this is the difference in how we're going to approach this study versus First Peter. First Peter, we just kind of went through it paragraph by paragraph. This book, what I'd like to do is to introduce the idea as it is in the text. And then when we get to a theological statement, a theological doctrine, we're going to spend a week or maybe multiple weeks on understanding that book, or that doctrine rather. So here's a list of all the doctrines that are present in this book. You can see Christology up here. We kind of touched on that already with Jesus is God, but it appears multiple times in this book. Bibliology is explained. The end of chapter one is one of two most important passages in the entire New Testament as regarding bibliology. Why we believe that this book is inspired. It is given to us from God, by God, and how we got it. And then we'll see pneumatology in verse 21. His role in scripture, in geology, demonology, theology proper, which is a, a study of God, and specifically God as creator. Eschatology goes deep. This is also one of those important passages in the New Testament on the future. And then soteriology, specifically on perseverance. 
So what we'll do is we'll look at the text in First Peter, Second uh, Peter, and then we'll deviate for a week or four, sometimes, like I think eschatology will take us a little bit of time to understand it, just so we understand this is what Peter wanted his people to understand. When they read about the end of all things is here, it's coming, the heavens will be unrolled, and so on. They'll roll up, and what, what does that mean for us today? So as we move through this book, we'll do these little rabbit trails into theology. But for you to grasp the way this book is outlined, we're going to follow this outline for however long it takes us. You can divide this book into four sections. The godly life. It's coming. I promise you. There you go. Go all the way. Go to all four. So this is one way to divide this book. The godly life and the pursuit of it. That's the first 15 verses. You have been given everything you need. Now live it. But then what's the power? What is really the power? And that's the focus on scripture. That's the second half of chapter one. Then chapters two and into beginning of uh, chapter two and then beginning of chapter three, he'll talk about the ungodly life. So he gave us a negative portrait of what we should not be pursuing. And you saw the list earlier. And then finally, what are the promises from God for the godly life? I think this is one of the easiest ways to understand this book and to move through it in a way that hopefully ties the whole thing together under the promise of the godly life. So what Peter is saying, if you want to live a life that guarantees that you are in Christ, if you look in chapter 1, And you can see in verse 10, be more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. In other words, if you want to have assurance as a believer that you are called by God. And continue in verse 10, you will never stumble. Verse 11, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In other words, if you want to be certain that you're actually Christ's, that he is your savior, that he is your God back in the beginning of the book, that he is your Lord in verse two, and that you will be in his kingdom. That's what he says in verse 11. It will be abundantly supplied to you, the eternal kingdom of our Lord. If you want to know every single day that you are headed in the right direction in your life, It will take us and you and me as individuals, but then moving together as Christians in this community, it will demand work and effort and self-control and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It will demand the godly life. So the promise is that you will be sure that you are a child of God. But all of that starts where he started back in 1 Peter, that we have been purchased by his priceless blood. 1 Peter 1.17. Because we understand that we're sinners and that we need a savior. And that unless we come to Christ admitting that we have been rebelling against him and that we've been doing things our way, that we have not been pursuing a godly life, rather a godless life, that we're more like Satan than Jesus Christ, unless we recognize that in humility and confess our sins before him, We're not going to be able to live the godly life. We're not going to be able to be in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But all it takes, the transition from that godless state to the godly state is repentance. That is to confess your sin, repent from it, turn from it, recognize it. And then God says, I will forgive you of every single sin you've ever committed. And I'll embrace you and welcome you. And then I will give you the eternal kingdom of our Lord. That's what it means to go from the godless life to the godly life. And the gospel message is what allows us to understand that transition. And then we live the godly life for the rest of our lives. And you will radiate godliness, excellence, righteousness, holiness, and moral likeness to Jesus Christ. In 1655... 
There was a man who wrote off of this book and kind of played it out in the Christian life. And this is what he wrote. When you first walk outside in the country late at night, you look up into the sky and you see a few stars. But the longer you gaze up at the sky and your eyes get increasingly used to the night light, the more stars you see. Until the whole firmament from every quarter with numberless multitude of stars is richly enameled, enameled as with so many golden studs. So when Christians begin to meditate on God's promises, the number of promises and the light coming from them may at first seem to be small and weak. So as to be insufficient to quell our fears and dispel our darkness. But when we read and meditate further and begin to see the thousands of promises in scripture together with the bright light that shines from them clearly and distinctly, our souls are then ravished and filled with delight and assurance. Then it is as if Christ and we meet together with a sure joy in the promises that speak assurance to our soul of him. That's the promise of this book. That the more knowledge you gain of Christ, the more assured you'll be of his promises, and the more you will resemble Jesus Christ in your soul. And I hope that's what you want. That's definitely what I want for myself and for all of us here in Foundation. That more and more, day by day, as we apply Second Peter with rigor, no excuses, and diligence that each of us resembles Jesus Christ more faithfully. Let me pray as we begin this study for the rest of the semester. Lord God, I pray for all of us here. I can only imagine Peter in that prison, damp, cold, dark, awaiting his execution, not knowing how he'll be crucified, how he'll, be die, how he'll die rather. And then writing this letter. And in your providence, it made its way to Asia Minor and all over the Roman Empire and ultimately into our language. And as we sit here nearly 2,000 years later, reading, thinking, contemplating, and ultimately applying it, I ask that the promises made in this book of resembling Christ, actually attaining godliness and living it out, that we would experience those promises. And that whatever we need to do, whatever diligence we need to apply, whatever self-control we have to exert, whatever knowledge we have to gain, that we would do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you allowed Peter to finish this book before he was crucified. And that now we're called to the same standard of godliness as the first Christians were. And help us to be faithful like they were in pursuing godliness. We pray this because we do want our lives to radiate like stars more brightly as the world gets darker and darker. We pray this to the honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.